Hey, what's happening? Welcome to the Influential Communicator, the go-to podcast for your weekly dose of storytelling, speaking, and communication bullets to help you craft stories that sell and deliver presentations that win. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani. So without further wait, let's get into it. When I think of an influential communicator, I think of my friend Eric Ream. Now, check this. Eric went from graduating from the U.S. Military Academy West Point in New York in their running program to spending five years as a military police officer and later found himself working in the utilities industry for around a decade. Now, Eric is an international speaker on human dynamics where he helps professionals rediscover their purpose and is just getting ready to release his new book, Rise Above Chaos, The Five Principles to Discover Significance and Live in Peace. But today, people, I pinned him down to dig deep into principle five in his book on how to become a masterful communicator and live a life of significance. What's up, dude? Welcome to the show. Robbie, it's great hanging out with you, man. You, that was a great introduction. My mother would be proud. Well done, man. <laughs> well, dude, listen, that your mom had a lot to do with your success. You know, in the beginning of your book, when I was reading through it, that one, I suppose, not question, but that statement that she delivered to you where she wouldn't give you the answer that you truly wanted. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's right, man. My mother's been huge in my life. Like I think a lot of people, right? My mom, uh, she was a big time entrepreneur in the U.S. and she uh, you know, built a seven figure business on her own while raising a family. You know, back in the '70s and '80s, and was one of those ladies that uh, she didn't really elevate or edify herself. But when she she picked her moments, right? In that book where you talk about where she picked her moment where she basically made a decision to go against her motherly instinct, which was to bring her son home because he was hurting. Instead, she challenged me to work through it because she knew what was waiting for me on the other side. She was wise enough to give me that. And so uh, that a piece of advice. So I give her a lot of credit. That's where my journey really, that was an inflection point on my journey. And she was a big part of that. Well, man, I suppose that level of communication and having that confidence to really hold her ground with her son changed your life, which I suppose segues nicely into the context which I really want to give our audience here. And it, for me, it starts with a quote, actually, that your professor, your English professor, actually said during, I think it might have been during a term or during summer break of the term, but he said to you, you will be judged on how you communicate. So tell us a little bit about why this quote impacted you so much during your time at West Point. Well, impact me in, in two ways, Robbie. At West Point, there's a it's called Cal English. When you're a junior at West Point, you're called a Cal. So it's plebe is your freshman year, sophomore year is yearling, junior year is Cal, for uh, your senior year is called firsty. Well, there's certain major milestones you have to to clear at the United States Military Academy in order for the academy to certify you worthy to lead. America's son and daughters in the harm's way. Because that's what happens. After four years, you're going to be commissioned as a lieutenant in the United States Army by the U.S. Congress, and they don't take that lightly. And so one of the things that West Point teaches is that communication is very important uh, for a leader. If you're going to have influence over others, especially when you think about the military, you're influencing others to go into harm's way, to go into go against their instincts and to go into the fray as opposed to going away from it. And so your junior year, there's this English class. And what's hard about that class is it's a four-hour final. And they give you a piece of paper and a pen. They ask you a question. And you have to answer that. 
you got four hours to answer. You got no other resources other than a paper and a pen. And you have to write down your answer in a certain amount of paragraphs, certain amount of words. And Ravi, if you have one grammatical error, one spelling mistake, anything, you fail it. You get two opportunities to take the course. If you fail it twice, they kick you out of the army. Whoa. That itself going into it, they kick you out of West Point, but that itself going into it already piques your like, oh my gosh, I got to take this thing seriously. And then when we got there, that was the first thing the professor said. And he basically said that if you're going to get others to follow you, you're going to have to communicate in a way that's going to influence them to get reach their best selves, right? And whether that's through a memorandum, whether that's through a written form, whether that's through getting up and saying a few words, you got to be very effective in the way you communicate. And so I was what, 20 years old at the time. And that stuck with me. And from then on, it really took me on my journey that, hey, if I'm going to take it to the next level, if I'm going to survive West Point and then beyond that, survive the military and then beyond that, survive, you know, just adulting in in the regular world, communication is going to be a cornerstone of that. And West Point started that process for me. You said the word influential communication. Now, it's funny in today's world, I think the word influence has, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people don't like it or they associate it with being an influencer. Let's clear the mud, right? Let's clear the clouds here. How do you define influential communication? I define it as guiding the levers of change through human behavior and human dynamics. And so one of the things that, uh, you know, the Academy taught us is that you're constantly evolving. Your world around you is constantly evolving. Your scenarios are constantly evolving. Nothing stays the same. In order to be successful, you have to embrace change, but stay ahead of change. In order to be successful, though, you can't do it alone. In fact, my whole book is predicated on the fact that if you want to achieve any level of significance, you're going to need the help of others. There's no example of any man or any woman, Ravi, achieving any level of significance without someone by their side. In order to do that, you're going to have to influence others, but in a way that they're willing to take the journey with you as the world changes. So what you're doing is you're influencing others and you're influencing them to change human behavior to uh, acknowledge and remain successful throughout the change that you're going through, whatever that is. And you speak of the word significance and success a lot throughout the book. And I suppose my question to this is for somebody who's listening right now and they're like, man... I don't really know what significance means to me or what success really looks like for me. And they don't know what that North Star is. Before we get into all the tactics and the strategic communication stuff, how does somebody define that North Star if they don't know what that North Star is? Yeah, I think that's a great question. In fact, that's the first element of my book. It's the fundamental question I think that we all have to answer. And that is the fundamental question of why, you know, Mark Twain, talked about, you know, the two most important days are the days that you're born and the day that you find out why. I think all of us want to know the answer to that question, Robbie. Why do we do what we do? You know, it's hard sometimes to get out of bed and to step out into the world. We live in a hostile world that's constantly trying to keep you from living your best version of yourself. And if you don't really understand why you're doing what you're doing, then that's where you get yourself in trouble. And that's where I don't think significance is waiting for you. Significance to me is... Every step that you take, there's purpose behind it. There's meaning behind it. And you understand that, hey, I'm doing this for a reason because every time you take a step, there's going to be some level of sacrifice associated with it, right? So if I decide to do one thing, I'm sacrificing another. And when I'm hanging out with you for an hour, I'm sacrificing other things that I can do. That's a constant decision point you have to make. Why am I doing this? Sacrifice is all about being able to understand what you're willing to suffer for, what you have passion for 
And if you have those things, that's where significant lies. And so I believe significance is really answered in two fundamental questions. And that is, what are you passionate about? But more importantly, is that passion aligned with what you're uniquely talented to do, qualified to do? Ravi, you have gifts that I don't have, and I have gifts that you don't have, right? And if you lean in those gifts with your passion, then that's where you begin to find your significance. Now, significance is something I can say, oh, here it is, and this is what it looks like, because I think it's different from everybody based on how they view the world through their set of passions and through their set of strengths. Like for someone who's a numbers person and someone who loves spreadsheets, I don't understand that world, right? Because that's not me. But I do understand the world that which I live, and that is getting on stage, delivering a message in front of thousands of people that's a paradigm I can relate with. And so that's why it's important that I think it has to be done from the what I just explained through your passions and, and your uh, strengths. When you start to do that, your significant life, your significant path begins to open up to you. And it's a beautiful thing. So for you, it sounds as though it's all about really understanding your passions, knowing your unique skill set, and then going on that journey to really, I don't like to say the word monetize, but I, you know, being able to bring that to the world and allow yourself to take care of your family, really, and the ones you care about along the way, right? Yeah. Well, there's a difference between understanding your why and having purpose. And there's a fundamental difference because I think there's some people that understand their why, but they don't live on purpose. What's the difference? The difference is... It's one thing to understand your passion, Robbie, and it's another thing to have a pretty good idea of what your strengths are. It's a different thing to take action on it. And so that's where a lot of people lose out on their life of significance is not being able to take action. And so that's the key is once I, me personally, once I began to understand what my why was, but then I began to take deliberate action to lean into that, that's where my purpose started to really take action. And then that's where my momentum started to happen. And that's really what got me out of my rock bottom and got me back on track to really live my best version of my life. Now, the funny thing is, is I don't think I really got into my groove until I was 45 years old, you know, and so I'm 48. So I've only been living really my purposeful life and what I believe is my path to significance for over the last three years. It's been a long journey for me. Man, what's interesting about your book is that I was shocked to see that one of your principles was masterful communication. I didn't expect it to be because, you know, a lot of books that you read about unlocking your purpose, finding it and really living a life of significance, they don't really touch upon the communication side of things, which is why I wanted to have you on the show, man. So let's dig deep now into principle five in your book for the purpose of this episode, you know, master communication and human dynamics. And at the start of one of the chapters, you said the words, when you embrace fear as the factor driving most of your human interactions, you learn around those issues and become a better communicator. So my question to you is, is why is that the starting point for becoming a world-class communicator? Yeah, that's a beautiful question, Robbie. You're really good at this, man. That's awesome. I don't think it's a surprise that mastering communication is a part of significance, because if you go back to what I originally said, you can't achieve any level of significance without the help of others, well, how do you how do you connect with others through communication, right? And so communication has to be a big piece of significance and purpose if you're going to do life with others, which is necessary to, to reach significance. And so one of the things that's funny when I talk about 
uh, when I begin to think about my experience, like for instance, when I was in Bosnia, Ravi, I was 22 years old when I went to Bosnia-Herzegovina. This is 1996. And so back then it was World War II level genocide going on in Bosnia where the world had to go in and do something about it. My unit was there to separate the Muslims and the Serbs from killing one another. And at 22 years old, I'd never seen that level of violence and that level of darkness before in my life. It was the first time I experienced it firsthand. You know, right now we're watching what's going on in the Ukraine right now, and it's different watching it on TV. I can tell you, it's so much more different if you were on ground right now and you could smell it, you could see it, you could taste it and experience it. That's what I had in Bosnia at uh, 22 years old. And so when I began to become fascinated by what really motivates people to do what they do, and when I went back to Germany, where I was a law enforcement officer and special investigator in the military, I really began to dive into why do we do the things that we do? And I really settled in on that fear is really the primary motivator. If I really wanted to bring it down to as simple as forms, we're constantly reacting and acting to what's going on around us and usually based out of fear. And why is that? Because we all want to survive. We all have an instinct for survival. And survival is going opposite of what you're fearful of. And so once you understand that the person you're interacting with right now, Robbie, you and I, as we interact, we're interacting in a way that we want to be as comfortable as we possibly can. And when fear dominates or influences our comfort zone, that's where communication gets disrupted. So what I've learned over the years, I'm 48 now, I'm still learning, but what I've learned over the years is that if I truly want to connect with someone, if I want to connect with you, Ravi, I can only do that within your comfort zone. You know, you read these motivational books and stuff. It's like, yeah, your growth is outside a comfort zone and things like that. That's right when it comes to personal growth, but it's not that when it comes to interacting with someone else. It's impossible to connect with someone when they're outside of their comfort zone. And so the number one rule of communication from my perspective is the first thing you have to do when you're interacting with another human being is you have to assess what level of comfort they're in right now. And so I spend time in the book. I spend time in my workshops assessing comfort zone because if someone's outside of their comfort zone, you have to get them back in their comfort zone immediately before you can connect with them. And so that was the primary crux of really what I believe is the foundation of communication is fear, comfort zone, and making sure you are self-aware or hyper-aware when someone's outside their comfort zone. And by the way, Ravi, when you're outside of your own comfort zone, because if you're outside of your own comfort zone, it's going to be hard for you to get connected with others as well. So being aware of that as well. Say you and I meet for the first time. All right, we're kicking it. We're hanging out. What is one telltale sign that I would give you to showcase that I'm feeling outside of my comfort zone in that moment? Well, actually, when you think about communication, there's three forms of communication. There's the words that we speak. And the studies show that's 7% of communication. It's tone and inflection. So you have wonderful tone and inflection, by the way. You've mastered that. You're beautiful at that. You communicate well through tone and inflection. And that's 38% of communication. And then the studies suggest that over 50% of communication is nonverbal body language. And so my number one focus is body language. That's what I'm looking for, nonverbal communication. And I'm looking for signs that you're uncomfortable. And so, you know, just for the listeners and to keep it really simple, when you start what I call pacifying yourself, right? And what I mean by that is whenever you get out of your comfort zone, your mind is going to demand your body to get itself back in its comfort zone. It's going to force it to do things to make yourself comfortable. So Ravi, you have certain ticks that you have. I have certain ticks that I have go-to things that I get uncomfortable. One of the universal ones is what I look for is when I look forward to when people start to do things maybe around their face when they start touching their face, that's a, usually a uh, telltale sign they're out of her comfort zone. You know, rubbing my cheek, uh, touching my eyes, rubbing the back of my neck, 
Another one is when they uh, want to put some kind of barrier between me and them. Sometimes you will see that in the form of crossing their arms. Sometimes they'll uh, take a drink and, or they're literally, I've seen when I sit on a couch with someone, they'll take a pillow and they'll literally put it in front of between me and them. That's a barrier. Another one, when people just can't get away, uh, they will either close their eyes for a long period of time. So if someone doesn't want to look at me for whatever reason, they close their eyes. They're putting a barrier between me and them. And I also watch their feet. By the way, your feet are the most trustworthy parts of your body. Whatever your mind is thinking goes directly to your feet. And so when I see someone step away from me or their feet point towards away from me, these are giving me indicators that this person is not comfortable. Now, the flip side of that, if you're really excited about the conversation, you're going to lean into the conversation. You're going to, your eyes are going to open up. Your eyebrows are going to peak up. You're going to open up your body. You're not going to cross your arms. You're going to open your torso to me. Give me those signs of positivity. Also, your feet are pointing towards me. Those are all positive signs that, okay, I'm connecting with you. And so that's what I'm looking for is I'm looking for nonverbal cues because that's very easy. And the reason why that's important is that, unfortunately, people, when we're talking to one another, we know we're, sometimes we're deceptive. In fact, some studies show that you're going to lie to me. You and I are going to have a, more than a 10-minute conversation. On average, a person will lie to you three times in the course of a, of a conversation. And so there's a good chance that you're going to lie to me about nine times in this conversation, Ravi. Now, usually it's going to be something that's benign. Like, Eric, that was a really great point in your mind. You're thinking, no, it wasn't, but you're trying to be nice. But non-verbally, you're going to send me clues that says, well, you're, you're actually, you're contradicting what you're saying. And so just because uh, someone's uncomfortable, it may, they may be uncomfortable for any different reasons, but it doesn't matter why they're uncomfortable. What matters is you to realize that they are uncomfortable, and it's your job as a communicator to make them comfortable before you can connect with them again. Oh, man, that's so, that is super interesting. And where my mind's gone to is people, I mean, entrepreneurs and salespeople, communicating in the virtual world and how they can really pick up on these nonverbal cues to assess the impact that they're having. Let me ask you this before I move on to one of the next chapters, which I found super fascinating in your book is, let's say if you know one of your tics is scratching the back of your head when you're nervous, for example, let's say you've got self-awareness around that as a salesperson. What can you do during a un an uncomfortable scenario with a prospect, you're talking to them about price, for example. Suddenly you mention the price and you scratch the back of your head because you feel uncomfortable saying it. Is it about replacing that tick? Is it about substituting it with something else? If you know what it is and you know when you do it, what do you do about it? Well, number one is be aware of it. That's number one. Number two is your job is to make the other person uncomfortable. I mean, not uncomfortable, I'm sorry, the other person comfortable. And so scratching the back of your neck is not necessarily going to make someone uncomfortable, actually. What makes people uncomfortable is when they're speaking and you break eye contact. By the way, you can break eye contact. You're allowed to break eye contact when you're speaking. So when you're speaking, Robbie, it's okay for you to break eye contact. But when I'm speaking, it's not so good if you break eye contact. So what you want to do is you want to think about, am I doing anything that could make the person uncomfortable? Like if you have a tick, like I used to have a person, a friend of mine, that when you would speak to her, she would look past you. She didn't know idea she was doing it, but it, it, it was kind of odd and it made you feel weird because she wasn't looking at you while she was speaking to you or while she was listening to you. So just be aware of, are there some things that you're doing that might make the other person uncomfortable? Like for instance, do you lean back in your chair and do you, you know, it's hard for the people to see this, but do you put your hands behind your head and give the kind of a look of authority to the person? Do you cross your arms like when the other person's talking and put a barrier between you and that person? Are you 
uh, doing, putting your hands on your hips. That's authoritative, uh, make, putting yourself in a superior type of mode that way. Uh, when you shake someone's hand, are you too dominant with your handshake? Those kind of things. So just being aware of, am I doing some things that could make the person uncomfortable? That's that's number one, awareness. Number two, then, if you do figure out, okay, there is something I'm doing, then it's something that you need to do because you can't change your mind from doing it, but you can replace it with something that's more positive, right? So instead of crossing your arms, you know you got to do something with your arms. Why I'm speaking, why not put your arms behind your back? And then what that does is it opens up my, and I'm not putting a barrier between you and I, but I'm still doing something with my arms as opposed to crossing them. So that's what I would do is be aware of it and then replace it with something that's more positive. See, I love that because I think a lot of people would say eliminate it. Like you and I both know in the speaking world, people say, oh, eliminate filler words. My perspective on it is if you ask me what I'm doing this weekend and I'm like, uh, oh yeah, I'm going out with my wife. That for me doesn't breed a lack of confidence in who I am, maybe what I'm saying, but a lot of people say eliminate them completely and it creates more anxiety. But you're saying just replace it with something more positive. I like that, dude. I like that. And I suppose for the audience, you know, to recap what I'm hearing, it's all about self-awareness to understand what you're doing, which could make the other person feel not seen, not heard and not acknowledged. And then being able to replace that with something more positive, a step two. I like it, dude. I like it. So, The next thing I want to touch upon is you mention in one of the chapters, the following magical question, as you put it. And this is something that you say people should ask in high conflict scenarios. So the magical question was, besides that, is there anything else? Talk to that for me, man. I'd love to hear more on it. Yeah, that's really good, man. That's really awesome. I appreciate asking that question. So one of the fascinating things I found is when you find yourself in conflict with someone, and you honestly want to deconflict the situation and you get to the point where you have the courage to ask them, by the way, just being able to have the courage to ask, you know, what's going on? I'm sensing something here. Is there something I need to know? This is kind of a fascinating thing for me because what I've discovered is that most of the time when people answer that question, they're most of the time, they're not going to tell you the true answer. And I don't know the reason for that. I don't know if it's because we want to avoid conflict or we don't want to hurt someone's feelings or we just don't have the time, you know, we're too busy. But when you get to the point where you're in conflict with someone, you ask them what's wrong, just expect that they're probably going to hold back. By the way, I don't know if I talk about this in the book or not, but the number one way in which we lie to one another is we hold back information. So very rarely am I just going to outright lie to you, Ravi. I want to tell you just enough to get by, but I'm going to withhold the other part. That way I can get get away with it. That's the deception. That's how most people lie. And so I may give you half truths of what's wrong, but I'm not going to give you the full truth. That's where as an influencer, as a communicator, you have to have the courage to dig further and ask, like you said, the magical question. You teed that up perfectly. So let's say that you and I are are in a disagreement and I'm picking up a vibe from you. You're uncomfortable. You crossed your arms, which, by the way, the audience can't see. You're steepling, which is a sign of confidence. That's extreme sign of confidence. That's a very positive signal you're giving me. But let's say I'm picking up some negative vibes. and I say, Ravi, is everything okay? Do we just stop for a moment? And you go, is something bothering you? Whatever answer you give me, I got to be willing to say, great, I appreciate you telling me that. And I, I want to work through that. But before we move forward, it's gotta, I got to ask you a question. Is there anything else I need to know? And you can ask it in different forms. And then I give you a chance to answer again. And then once you answer that question, guess what I do? I ask it again. Is there anything else? That's the part I think most people are, are really afraid to do, to dig deep into really what the issue is. You've got to have courage. It takes courage to ask something wrong. 
It takes even more courage to ask, is there anything else? Even takes more courage to say, is there anything else? And asking that question over and over and over again till you get to the point where they say, no, there's nothing else. Once they tell you, no, there's nothing else, usually that last answer is usually the true one. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you have a coworker and you just, for whatever reason, they're not making eye contact with you. We can feel it. We can feel it when something's off, especially if we work with someone over and over and over again, we're used to hanging out with them and now something's changed. And finally, let's say you go up to her and say, hey, you know what, uh, Sally, I, I'm kind of sensing something here. You know, if I've done something to offend you, I apologize. Is there anything going on? And she may some, say something like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I've just been busy lately. How many times do you hear that one? It's just been a rough week, you know, whatever. And most people say, yeah, it's been a rough week too. And they move on. Don't do that. Instead, say, Sally, I appreciate that. It's been rough for me, but is there anything else I need to know? And Sally may say something like, oh, yeah, you know, well, with that last meeting we had, it was just a hard meeting. You know, those numbers, that was, those were hard pills to swallow that we threw out there. And, you know, we'll get through it. I, I understand. And most people then will move on, but don't do it. Instead, guess what you say? I, I get it, Sally. Those numbers were tough. Is there anything else, though, that maybe might be going on and you need to know? And then Sally may look at you and says, well, Actually, I was the one that put those numbers together and you didn't tell me that you were going to second guess it in the meeting and my boss was there and it embarrassed me and I was embarrassed by it. I made a mistake. I wish you'd have ran it past me beforehand. Now you got to the crux of it. Now, once you get to that point, Robbie, the key is to say, Sally, I apologize. By the way, humility is the best way to sacrifice for another human being. And we connect with each other when we sacrifice. So number one, saying that you're sorry, but number two, helping her acknowledge and you acknowledging if we can get through this issue, are you and I good? So number one, you've gotten to the issue, but number two, you're getting a commitment. If we can clarify and clear this up, are we good? That's the key. And that's where the magic question really plays a big role in deconflicting situations. Dude, there's so, so much to unpack there. But I tell you what, what I find really difficult myself is that conversation I find way easier with a prospect, somebody who there's a loose connection to. But when it's somebody you truly care about and it is high conflict because it could really impact your relationship with this person, it becomes so much harder to ask what's wrong. But what's interesting is when you ask that, they may give you 10% of the truth. But then when you react in a you know, humble, as you said, and positive way, the barriers go down. They give you more and they give you more. So that's super interesting what you said, because I was playing back scenarios in my mind and I was like, oh my, yeah, man, that's so true. Because I remember in this conversation. So that's fascinating, dude. I hope I hope you guys are listening carefully and taking notes, by the way, because that's that's gold right there. Now, one of the things that you do really well, Eric, and I've noticed this from the interactions that we've had is you understand that it's not just about what you say it's about how you say it, right? And you mentioned in your book, and you mentioned it earlier, that tone and inflection is 38% of communication. So why is it so important to not just focus on the content, but also to focus on the way that we deliver content when it comes to speaking with influence? Well, because emotion trumps everything, right? Uh, it would be nice if human beings were logical. If human beings were logical, it would make... You know, we wouldn't be experiencing what we're experiencing in the world today, but we don't think logically. We think emotionally and tone can either accentuate emotion or it can dampen emotion or enhance emotion. And so that's one of the reasons why I love hanging out with you, because you have a tremendous ability to use your tone and inflection to literally change the temperature of the room, Robbie. I mean, you change the temperature of the room based with your tone and inflection. That's a gift that you have. Some people have that. Some people don't. But just understanding that 
I can come up to someone and I can say, hey, how you doing? You know, that's one way I can say it. Or I can go up to somebody and say, how you doing? That's another way of saying it, right? The first one's professional and the second one's kind of creepy, right? And so just understanding that your tone plays a role and lubricating a conversation and using that to your advantage is important. The other thing too is when you build a relationship with someone, they have to hear your voice. That's why I'm a big fan of calling people up and leaving voicemails. You know, when I talk to salespeople and things like that, I say, don't wor- don't be afraid of leaving a voicemail so people can hear your voice. In fact, whenever you send me an email, Robbie, I literally read it in your accent, you know, because I'm so used, I'm used to your accent. I'm used to your tone and inflection. And so that really is what uh, I think helps a communication is, and, and helps two people in their interacting is that it helps level out or enhance the emotion. That way that person's more apt to want to communicate with you if you're using positive tone and inflection. In fact, you can actually use tone and texting. I just happened to, this happened to me recently and understanding that you have to be aware of your tone and inflection even when you're texting because have you ever gotten an email from somebody or a text from somebody and you're like is that person mad at me right now? I'm not sure I got the tone of that. And so there's been many times I've written my daughter a, a text and she says, "Dad, you got to work on your tone when you send me a text. I don't know if I'm in trouble. If you want to speak to me uh, and have a nice cordial conversation." So even with that, I ha- electronically I have to think, "What is my tone coming across? And is it opening up a conversation or is it closing the other person down?" Does that make sense? I tell you what, the only thing that makes sense to me is when you said, "How are you doing?" You sounded like Joey from Friends, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, bro, no, a hundred percent. It it does make sense, and I've been slammed for this before, but I don't care. I'm going to say it again. From my perspective, the game is about ninety nine percent is about delivery, one percent is content, but that content needs to be one hundred percent on point. So I'm not saying you should spend more time on delivery or spend more time on content. I'm saying that. When somebody hears your message, you can have the most perfectly scripted solution message story in the world. But if you can't deliver it with impact, then it's not going to penetrate the minds of your audience. So, hey, that's my perspective. But, dude, it totally makes sense what you're saying. And especially for the salespeople and entrepreneurs listening to this is think about when you're prospecting, whether it's leaving voicemails, doing video DMs, voice notes, something to think about there about what Eric is saying is, Think about the tone in which you're delivering that in, because when it's over text, guess what? They're going to be interpreting in a way which you may not necessarily have expected. So something to note, something to note. So what's one exercise, Eric, that people can do to increase their delivery skill set when it comes to storytelling and speaking? Well, I think one of the things you just mentioned is storytelling. When I have people come to me and they ask me, you know, like I work a lot with the professional speakers. And when someone says, Eric, what's it take to be a, a good, a really excellent professional speaker? I tell them, you got to be a really good storyteller. And I think that's a skill set that's not uh, trained enough just in everyday life. Just being able to connect with someone through story in a way that enhances the conversation. And so I think one of the things that I would do as a communicator is, you know, sometimes when you're trying to communicate, it doesn't always have to be transactional. It can be relational too. And relating with someone in a human way. So if you're a boss, for instance, are you always just the boss or is there time for you to maybe settle down and say, hey, let me tell you about the time that I really dropped the ball here. And let me tell you a story about when I did something similar to what you did and I actually did it worse than you did and I'm here to, I'm here to survive it. That goes a lot, lot further with connecting with someone and saying, hey, let me tell you the four things you need to do to fix this. 
And so I think storytelling is something that um, if you can master that, it could really enhance your communication. So ladies and gents, for those of you listening right now, if I can extract what you need to do tomorrow in the next 24 hours, it's think about the person you want to impact and share a vulnerable story about a time where things didn't work out for you to really connect with them versus preaching and saying, hey, this is what you need to do. Here's the three ways you can increase your sales in the next 24. You know what I mean? Like, let's let's uh, remember that we're speaking to a human here. So I love that, Eric. Thank you, man. And on that topic of speaking to the salespeople in the audience, later on in the book, you actually highlight four body language cues to look for when trying to build better relationships. Now, you've spoken about that, you know, shifting away, hiding their hands, touching their face, looking down. So we've touched upon what not to do. What is one body language or nonverbal cue that someone could use to appear more confident, even though there might be a puddle under their seat because they are scared as hell? Yeah. Well, you actually, you've been demonstrating this whole time. I call it the steeple. And so that's where you basically, it's almost like praying hands. You, you touch your fingertips together in front of you. You're steepling. There's not many silver bullets, I would say, based on my experience in novel communication, but this is the closest one. And so whenever you're speaking to someone or you're listening to someone and you steeple like that, Number one, what you're doing is you're showing your hands, which people need to see. And what You're really good at using your hands, by the way, I've noticed. And so people need to see your hands. We build trust through our hands. And so number one is you don't want to hide your hands because when you do, consciously or subconsciously, the, the partner, the person you're trying to communicate with is going to pick up on the fact that they're not seeing your hands. And that's going to immediately make them skeptical of you. So number one, they got to see your hands. But what you do with your hands is important too. So if I'm speaking to you and I'm trying to pitch an idea to you and I do it and I steeple while I'm doing it, I'm going to send a signal to you that I'm confident, but not in an arrogant way. There's different ways in which you can signal confidence, but it could also look like arrogance. This is a much more subtler way to do it that gives you that signal of confidence. By the way, too, Ravi, like you just said, even though you may be nervous, whatever your body does, your mind's going to want to sync up with it. So if your body starts to steeple, guess what's going to happen? You're going to find confidence that you didn't know you had. Your your mind's going to start picking up on that, and you're going to feel a level of confidence that you didn't start with. So it's almost way to, a way to hack your mind a little bit because your mind's going to be like, okay, my body's saying we're, we're confident. I guess we're confident, and you're going to find confidence. The other thing, too, is when you're listening to someone, it's also good to use that steepling technique because while you're listening, it'll send a positive signal to the other person that, number one, you're listening, but number two, you're confident in what you're hearing. So whenever you can signal that positive confidence in a conversation, it's going to put the other person at ease. And, oh, by the way, it's going to put you at ease, too, because your mind's going to sync up with it as well. That's a golden tip right there, ladies and gents. You need to pause. Rewind and you need to have a listen to that because that was dope, man. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of the study done by Adam, rather, Galinsky of Northwestern University. I don't know when it was done, but him and his team talked about something called enclosed cognition, where they gave a white coat to a group of people and they said, hey, this belonged to a doctor, I think it was, or a scientist, don't quote me. And it showed, I think it was an increase in focus or com uh, concentration. And they gave it to another group and they say, hey, it belonged to a painter. And it showed no such improvement, which I don't know about what that means to you. But for me, 
when I'm wearing a suit, my wife's always like, why are you puffing out your chest and walking with such swaggers? Because I'm, look, I'm wearing a suit. I feel good, right? That's why. So I don't know. Do you believe that sometimes what you wear has an impact on your confidence and that changes the way you communicate? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's another study I saw. Uh, I read once where this is in New York City where they had a, an individual w- get on a, he was on a street and, you know, we have the signal to walk or don't walk. Well, he was just in regular street clothes and the don't walk sign was on and he he went against it and walked anyway and nobody followed him. They took the same guy a couple hours later, same scenario, but put a nice suit on him and had a don't walk sign on and he went anyway and like everybody followed him just because he was dressed differently. So I think it makes a huge difference, uh, you know, how you dress. In fact, I talk about it in my nonverbal communication classes, how you dress communicates intent. You know, and so even the the small part about this rolling up your sleeves, maybe loosen your tie a little bit if you're a guy that sends signals. In fact, for our politicians, they actually hire consultants that tell them, hey, this is the color blouse you should wear. This is the color tie you should wear in this situation because it's going to communicate certain things. So anything you do that's that another person can perceive could be perceived for a positive or a negative and yourself too, and how you perceive what you're wearing. In fact, I just bought this uh, Apple watch here and I paid way too much for it, but I feel really good about when I wear it. I feel, I don't know, I feel sharper because of it. Just by the act of putting it on changes my mindset. And I knew that going into it. That's why I was willing to spend a little bit more money. I shouldn't have spent on it because I knew it was going to elevate my game a little bit. So that definitely makes, makes a difference for sure. Dude, I'm a big fan of that. I've believed that for so, so long, and I'm so glad that studies are really reinforcing it. So at the end of the book, one thing that you talk about is being on that journey to find inner peace over the last 15 to 20 years. Now, my question is, if somebody's listening to this right now and they go, well, what the hell has being a world-class communicator got to do with finding inner peace? One, can you make that connection for us? And what does inner peace look like for you now, Eric? Well, yeah, because I've been on the other side of it where I didn't have peace. And that's not a good place to be. And I know there's a lot of people that are there right now that are listening. And I know what that feels like when you get up and you face the world. You have talent. You have desire. You have ambition. But you just feel like I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. And it's very frustrating. And I spent a lot of time in that area. But what happened was, is once I started to make it some decisions that, you know what, I got to make some changes. If I don't make some changes, I want to ruin some relationships. And to me, that's what rock bottom looks like, by the way, Ravi. Rock bottom to me is when you fail in relationships, because at the end of the day, you can recover from health issues. Um, you can recover from financial issues. It's hard to recover when you let down someone very close to you. And that's where I was at one point in my life. And so I knew that in order for me to lead a life of significance, I was going to have to make some deliberate changes where I began to focus on what it is I wanted to do, why I was going to do it, and start taking steps towards that. I didn't do it because I was looking for peace. I found peace as a result of it. I didn't realize that would be the case. That was something I discovered that was a beautiful thing once I got on the other side of it, that every day when I wake up, life still happens to me. You know, I still have bad things that happen to me every single day. But when it happens to me, I'm coming from a different place that even though it happens to me and I sidestep it and I keep moving forward, I'm still moving forward in a very deliberate direction. I know that there's purposeful action, even though sometimes it's with a limp because life happens to me. When I make those steps, I can do it with peace because I know where I'm going. 
Whereas before, when things would happen to me, I had no idea where I was going, and that just led to frustration. So what I discovered is, is that when you start to connect with people in a way that's meaningful, but also in a way that you're doing it in, from, a, 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 from an area of strength and purpose, and people begin to align with you with that similar strength and purpose, and you begin to work with each other and make a difference in your community, uh, in the world that, that, you, that you're trying to impact, there's ultimate peace to that because you know that what you're doing is going to last so much longer than you. And that's when you realize you're living a life of legacy. And when you do that and you know you're doing something that's good for you, but also good for the community and long, it's going to outlast you, then there's peace knowing that, man, I've got the momentum going. And at some point, I'll be able to take my hand off the plow and that thing's going to keep on going without me. And it's going to be a beautiful thing to watch. And to me, that's what peace feels like. Ladies and gents, if you're listening to this right now, think about what Eric just said about connection. Because realistically, that's what influential communication is about. It's about connecting with people. And as Eric just said there, it's about having the impact you really want so that you can really have the legacy you desire. Man, Eric, you know, before I ask you the final question, one thing I really want to acknowledge you for is... One of your superpowers, I believe, is just showing up. You talk about it in your book about the process of systems. And one thing you've inspired me with is about systems because it means that you just have to show up and execute. And systems truly, it just means, it, well, it just allows you to build momentum. And when you build momentum, you build confidence. And when you build confidence, well, the world can see it because confidence allows you to have that positive energy transfer with your prospects, customers, relationships. So, dude, that is one of many of your superpowers and I appreciate you for it, man. So tell me this. Finally, when it comes to influential communicators, who do you look up to for wisdom when it comes to influential communicators? Oh, it's tons of people. Uh, I've surrounded myself with really good people. I've been very intentional with that. I think if I look back on my life, that's one thing I've been really intentional with. And so actually in my book, at the end, I have an acknowledgments area of all the people that I acknowledge. And so I would say there's been a couple of key people along the way that during a season of my life, they really stepped in and they they really helped me out a lot. And so I think in different areas of my life, there's different people that I look to. Like, for instance, my spiritual side, there's a guy by the name of David Norris, who's a big, big, plays a big role for me because he's one of those guys that really has knocked it out of the park as far as leading his family, leading his community. I look up to him quite a bit from the business side of it. Uh, our, our mutual friend, Grant Baldwin, uh, who also is a really good family man that's really crushing it and has done away with a lot of balance. I look up to him because the way he communicates with confidence and humility is just, it's unprecedented. Then there's a group of guys I went to West Point with, and that was the beauty of my mother because my mother said if I stuck it out at West Point, that I would make relationships that would last forever. And she was right. 30 years later, there's a group of like six or seven guys that I meet with every 90 days, Ravi, and we just talk to one another. Oh yeah, we talk to one another, we uplift one another, and we edify one another. And those group of seven men I've just done life with for the last 30 years, I've watched them make mistakes. I watched them brush themselves off. We've been there for one another in good times and bad. And what's nice about them is I can go to them and there's literally no judgment. It's just, Eric, I'm here for you. You, you can tell me anything. And it stops with them. It's, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It doesn't go anywhere else but them. I can talk to them about anything and they can communicate to me with anything. And just knowing I have a group of guys that I can go to at any time is unbelievable and it's beautiful. And I say men because I'm a guy, right? And I think the best way for me to, to really take off my armor and sit down with another guy that's trying to be a father, right? 
that's trying to be a husband that can relate to what I'm relating with. That's very, very important to me. And when it comes to the opposite sex, it's really my wife and my mother. It used to be my sister, but you know she passed away. And so my wife and my mom are two uh, female uh, folks that are big influencers in, in my life. And I always go to them for when I want to really be humbled because they will tell me what I need to hear. <laughs> Same with my mom, dude. She's going to tell me how it is. But also, she's my biggest fan. But man, thank you so much, dude. Ladies and gents, rise above chaos to five principles to discover significance and live in peace. Is out now by the time you listen to this. Anywhere else where people can learn more about you in the book? Yeah, I think the best place to go would be riseabovechaosbook.com. You go there, you got everything you need. Ladies and gents, Eric Ream, I'll see you on the other side. Peace. Oh, okay, okay, hold on. So you thought that this was the part of the show where I say something like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you did enjoy the show, then please drop us a review and do share it with a friend. Well, I tell you what, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to be predictable here, okay? Do share it with a friend and do drop us a review if you got some value from today's episode, okay? So if you want to impact people, remember, you need to learn how to influence them first. 